Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey folks, we've got a great show for you this week that we taped back in mid-April of 2020 when the pandemic was still in its relatively early stages and we thought that the film that Jeremy and I discussed with our two guests was just about to be released. Obviously, COVID had other ideas that didn't happen along the way. Uh, we have obviously COVID had other ideas and that didn't happen, though at long last it has been released in China and it is doing fantastically well there. Uh, please stay tuned for release dates for outside of China. There's been no date set yet for the U.S., but as soon as COVID or territory sales allow, there will be an announcement and we will keep you up to date. Meanwhile, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China with our indispensable daily newsletter, website, and growing range of podcasts and videos. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my guilt-inducingly genteel lockdown in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from stately Goldhorn Manor in the woodlands of southwestern Nashville, Tennessee, is Jeremy Goldhorn, whose woolly countenance is one of the first things I see in the morning when we do our daily team video calls. Jeremy, man, greet the people. Well, hello there, Kaiser, and hello, listeners. How are you doing? I am doing very well. I am, yeah, stuck in the holler, uh, all dressed up and nowhere to go. It's not too bad. Um... You know, uh, I've always been working remotely, so here I am again, uh, working remotely. Arthur Jones, a longtime Shanghai resident and documentary filmmaker, has made a second film in collaboration with another old friend of ours, Stephen Schwankert. Longtime listeners to Seneca might remember that about seven years ago, we did a show with Arthur and Steve about their previous film, which was directed by Arthur, uh, and about the work of Steve. It was called The Poseidon Project. Uh, this time, they've taken on an even more ambitious project. You might describe it as Titanic. Uh, so this film, which again features Steven Schwenkert doing his nautical sleuthing thing, is finally, maybe, going to be released in theaters in China soon. Uh, the film is called The Six, and it's about the search for the six Chinese men who survived the sinking of the Titanic on the night of April 14th, 1912. Along the way, as good documentaries do, it illuminates whole sociopolitical contexts, uh, the whole thing of the time. Before you know it, you realize that you're watching a really important work about an often overlooked facet of the Chinese immigrant experience. And as you watch it, you also realize how relevant it is to today when we are experiencing a different kind of yellow peril in certain Western countries, particularly the US. Anyway, we are delighted to have Arthur and Stephen with us from Shanghai to talk about the film. Gentlemen, welcome back to Seneca and congratulations. And it's, it's been, what, seven years since, since we last saw each other, has it, Arthur? Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yes, I can't believe it's seven years. Yeah, that's uh, it. It's felt like less than seven, but yes, it is. It's probably seven. Most of which time we spent making the six. So. <laughs> indeed, indeed, it's 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 wonderful to be back. Uh, first of all, we should warn you guys that there are spoilers here. Uh, we should also mention that as of the date of recording here, three of the four of us have actually seen the film, but one of us, the guy about whom the film actually centers, uh, Stephen, has not seen it. 
with kind of characteristic Swankirchian piety. He is saving himself, as it were, uh, for opening night. <laughs> <laughs> I just made up that adjectival form, Swankirchian. I like that. Um, Stephen, if, if I may ask, what the flying f*** is that all about? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's, you know, of course I was there. Of course I know the story. Of course it's not going to be spoiled for me. But, you know, the, this this ultimately is a project in two forms. It's a, it's a documentary film, which is done and in the can and awaiting release. And it's also a book, which, you know, I'm, I'm let's say, about halfway through. So, um, you know, I... I still want to be surprised, you know, I still want there to be a, an element of, I mean, I've seen a cut of the film, uh-huh. but I haven't seen the cut. Uh, so okay. it's, you know, it's still sort of a final, like, you know, I mean, come on, I want Arthur to surprise me. You know, I want to see <laughs> what, you know, it's, you know, I may be in the film, but it's not my film. It's Arthur's film. Right. Um, just as, just as, you know, his work appears in the book, but it's not his book. So, um, you know, it, it's kind of nice to have that tiny little bit of reveal, you know, how did you finally put it together? And, and, you know, I think it also shows that, you know, probably Arthur has one take on the story and, and I have a different one. Yeah, we'll so, have to ask you about that. you know, that. Let's, let's see how it comes out. Mm-hmm. Let's start with the idea for the film itself. I know it's been several, many, many years in the making, really, because we first talked to you about this quite some time ago. It's been an epic, epic journey uh, from the time, I think, that... Uh, Kaiser and I first knew about this project to today where now at last you are about to release it and in the meantime the entire cinema industry has changed we've had COVID-19 the whole world is different uh just can you talk Arthur a little bit about uh the journey from conception through this uh, torturous birth to <laughs> where we are today <laughs> well it's I mean, the journey of the film was a strange one because when we started out, of course, like most documentaries, we thought it was going to end up on TV. I mean, that's the sort of natural home of documentaries. But things changed a bit a few years ago and people began to speak in China, at least, about, you know, about releasing films, re- releasing documentaries um, in the cinema more than they than they have done in the past. And so we started, it was about two years ago, we started down the route of thinking, well, how do we make this work on the big screen? What do we do to make it more epic? What do we do with the music to make it fill that space more? And so that's always been the, you know, it was, it was fantastic when we thought that might happen. Of course, now everything's changed, but in a sense, nothing's changed because we're just, we're just sitting around waiting for it to get released here. Um, and in the meantime, we do now. We so we have our distributor here, who's going to put it out in theaters in China. And then for the rest of the world, we have an international distributor who is looking at the more normal way of right. doing it. You know, they're taking it to TV channels and they're trying to get it on VOD and all that kind of stuff. So it's going to come out. As for whether it will work in China and in cinemas, I think no one knows right now. I mean, it's a very very strange situation. Um, you know, they tentatively. St- started to reopen a few cinemas a couple of weeks ago and then they shut them again. And I, and I suppose no one wants to be the first film to come out. So we're sort of in that uh, in you know we're in we're in that situation where we're thinking well maybe it's a month, maybe it's two months. We just we just don't know. Arthur, did you have a particular audience in mind when you made the film? Was it intended for the North American audience or for mainland China? Was it, you know, for Chinese and diaspora? What did you have an audience in mind? Um no, I, I, I never think, I mean, I've been asked many times by film people here and distributors and people, you know, oh, well, this is this is for, you know, this is for a Chinese audience. Oh, this is going to work in North America or this is Chinese Americans are going to love this. I don't really like, you know, for me, it doesn't hmm. really work in those terms because I just make the film until it stops looking <laughs> painful and awkward to me. You know, I just keep cutting it until it until it's no longer a painful thing to look at. Um, so, I mean, it's sort of selfish, but I think you can only really cut these things for yourself. Oh, I understand that all too well. I mean, it's exactly the same <laughs> approach we use when editing the podcast. <laughs> it's the avoidance of pain. I mean, I think it's, it right. runs behind all of these things. It's just you don't want it to feel bad on the screen. So I, I, I wish I knew who the specific audience was, but it doesn't really work that way for me. Well, when, when we started out, we, you know, we did Poseidon, um, you know, six, seven years ago, and, and we were really happy with how it turned out, both the book and the film. And, um, you know, we had so much fun working together and doing it. I mean, our, you know, Arthur and I have known each other for over 20 years, but, 
you know, there, there was just no real occasion for us to work together except at, you know, except at that Shanghai once or twice, uh, way, way, way back in the day. And, um, you know, but we knew each other and, and we, you know, we just didn't happen to live in the same city, but, you know, we'd see each other from time to time. And so, right. you know, Poseidon came off and that was great. And so then it kind of pointed towards, well, what are, what are we going to do next? And, you know, I, I have such a roaring social life that I spend most nights like searching the internet for information about shipwrecks. And, um, you know, there was sort of a ready-made Shanghai shipwreck story to do. I mean, big disaster, big mystery, huge loss of life. And, and uh, you know, also because we had done so much travel during Poseidon, I thought, well, gee, it'd be kind of nice for Arthur and his crew to, you know, do something that's in their backyard. It'll save some money and, you know, it'll be, it'll be a little easier that way. I could spend some time down there. And, um, but it, more than anything, it was just a really, really compelling, interesting story. Um, the one tricky bit was that, you know, it takes place against the backdrop of the, the Chinese Civil War. And it's sort of like, well, if we're going to do this for, uh, let's call it an international audience, not necessarily just a Chinese audience, but if we're going to do it for an international audience, how do we tell the story without, you know, just doing like so much background on the Chinese Civil War and all that? And, and I, you know, for me, I just thought, well, that's easy. We're just going to, we're just going to compare it to Titanic because Titanic is the shipwreck that everyone knows. And Wait, what's the, the, the ship that you're talking about? Uh, the, the, the Shanghai shipwreck? Uh, it's the, uh, it's the SS Jiangya. It's spelled, it, it's more familiar in the way Giles as Kyangya, K-I-A-N-G-Y-A. Right. right. Um, just making sure. Yeah. And, um, so, uh, you know, we started looking into that and then, so I went and got my Titanic books off the shelf and, um, you know, a night to remember and, and all the classics. And I started to kind of poke around online and I think I used the secret, uh, explorer search terms, Chinese and Titanic. <laughs> and, um, you know, things started to pop up and, you know, I think I knew, I think like at some, you know, three o'clock, shipwreck rabbit hole i i think i had stumbled upon this listing before that there were chinese on board titanic and you know like everybody else who looked at it i looked at it and said gee there's almost no information there okay forget it move on you know i, I just thought but like who are these guys like what what happened to these guys you know like why why do we know why don't we have more information about them and so instead of just sort of clicking somewhere else you know i just sort of to read what was available, um, you know, wait a second, four of, wait, there were eight guys, there were eight Chinese men on Titanic, six of them survived, and four of those six were in the same lifeboat as Bruce Ismay, the owner of Titanic, and, mm -hmm. and, and another one was plucked from the water, he may be the last person rescued from Titanic, I mean, it's, it was just like, wait a second, that, that, this, you know, and then, um, you know, every year, like right now, you know, it's sort of mid-April, at least when we're recording, it's mid-April, and it's, you know, this is Titanic season, the anniversary's coming up. And so I was just thinking, like, well, somebody's going to put up their hand and say, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know, Jacqueline Wong, and I'm a student at, you know, Champaign-Urbana, and my grandfather was, a, was, you know, on the Titanic. And, and that just never happened. There was no, nobody popped up. You know, none of the anniversaries brought anybody out. And I thought, well, this is ridiculous. Like, these guys have got to be out there. They didn't just disappear. Right. And then there was the little tricky bit about trying to convince Arthur that that was a better story than the one we were working on. Yeah, and that's what and, I was going to ask Arthur. Arthur, how compelling did this seem to you at first blush? I mean, I, first of all, I pushed it right. back because I thought, you know, that I, I don't want to make another maritime history documentary straight after the last one you know it's it's not it's not really my area you know it's steven's area um and um so initially i thought well maybe there's something else we can work on um i liked the the jung ao story we were looking at for a while um and it was titanic it just felt unwieldy and big and really covered by other people it didn't feel like something fresh um and it took a while. I, I, I spoke to a guy from PBS, I think at a film festival, and briefly mentioned it to him. And he said, well, you've got to do it. I mean, it's it's like a new Titanic story. How many how many new Titanic? I mean, there's, everything's been covered. Um, I, I, there was an expert that was actually helping us out on the film, a guy called Gunter Babler, who's um, who's a, a, a real, uh, you know, he, he, he knows 
I mean, it's not possible to know everything about Titanic, but he's a real specialist on certain areas of Titanic. And he said he gets approached by people, you know, making documentaries from time to time, and they're down to the level of detail of, you know, what was the diameter of ashtrays and the second-class smoking lounge and things. I mean, there's no... There's, there's, there's very little chance to be working on completely fresh stories on Titanic. And so I pushed back for a while, but eventually... And some, I think some Chinese friends of mine, I mentioned it to, and they said, there, there were Chinese people on Titanic? How do, how do we not know that? Right, I mean, because like the 98 James Cameron film, and by the way, James Cameron is a producer of your film and is featured in it. Anyway, that film was, if I'm not mistaken, one of the highest grossing and still most beloved films, foreign or otherwise, in all of modern Chinese filmic history. Uh, I, I don't know that I've ever met a Chinese person who hasn't actually seen the, the movie. So mm. are Chinese people aware of, uh, you know, first of all, are they are they as obsessed with the historical Titanic in the same way that Americans and, and Brits tend to be? Well, I, di- I didn't know that. I mean, it took me a while. It's only recently it's I've realized that. You know, Titanic for for a Chinese audience is really based on that movie. I mean, that's where it begins for them. Wow. It wasn't in the textbooks. It wasn't a big cultural, uh, you know, touch point. Um, and so that's really important. But I do think when they when they when they find out there were Chinese people on board, it's got a resonance for them because there is. I, I also think where it it's the sort of it's the zeitgeist, isn't it? I mean, the the mm, sense of yeah. reclaiming historical moments that we were written out of. Um, is is something that pl- is is important to people, um, and realizing you were part of a historical event that everyone else claims and can use as their big metaphor, that for me was like the compelling reason to follow it. Yeah, uh, you said in the film that while the lives of the other survivors, seven hundred and five of them in total, are really quite well attested, but the lives of these uh, six Chinese survivors were uniquely unknown. Mm. What accounts for this? I mean that's something we cover in the in the film. I mean, it, it, historically, it's sort of they get they get hit multiple times. I think. I mean, first of all, they're in third class. Uh, the steerage passengers are less well known than anyone else. They weren't um, they weren't uh, interviewed during the inquiries that followed Titanic, so their their stories weren't part of the official sort of literature on on Titanic. Um, secondly, um, they didn't most likely didn't speak English. Certainly at the time, if they did speak English, it would have been uh, fairly minimal. Right. They weren't picked up in the... The story wasn't picked up in the press, except, as you'll see in the film, you know, it's it's there's a, there's a few negative stories get picked up about them. So even if they'd been aware of the story, you can, you can feel, you know, if they'd known that those stories were written about them, you can only imagine that they just want to run away from that. That would be something very hard to, you know, to, to combat with the lack of power. And then, of course, just historically, that moment, the 1910s and 20s, was the moment, in a sense, where Chinese people were least welcome, in, in, certainly in, in, in the U.S., in North America, in Europe, in Britain. Um, it's a time when they just weren't welcome, and so their story was never part of it. But even in China, I think we, it's not in the film, but about 20 years after Titanic, um, Professor Chong Wei, who was very useful uh, to us in the film and explained a lot of the cultural background to why things worked out the way they did at the time. But he mentioned in the 30s there was um, quite a famous essay, I think, in which the six survivors were, um, their story was brought up once again in China and used it as an example hmm. of how Chinese people shouldn't be, how that was the old China. They shouldn't act shamefully that they brought disgrace on themselves. So even, you know, 20 years later, if you can imagine you were them and you'd moved on and had a new life and somebody said, hey, there's somebody's written an essay about you. Um, just this constant um, refrain about either they're worthless and not worth remembering, or if they are remembered, it's for doing things that are negative. So I think that in that sense, it's unique. It's just a deep, a deeper level of, of negativity about them, M- more reasons than anyone else for their story not to get told. Oh, that's 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 really interesting. So before you guys started enlisting researchers and and actually working on this, aside from this one professor who brought up that essay from the '30s, had you guys encountered anyone else in China who even knew that there had been Chinese passengers, uh, let alone six survivors? 
No, not really. I mean, it was it was um, the funny thing was one one of the ways we wanted to go into the the the, the Jiangya story was to kind of just you know do man of the you know person on the street interviews. Um, especially with younger Chinese people, and say, "Hey, you ever heard of Titanic? Yeah, sure. Jack Rose, yeah. And and you know, you ever heard of Jiang Yam? No, never heard of it. Um, wow. So I mean, the, the you know, the fact that the story loomed so large, you you just would think that you know more people would have somebody would have stumbled on it. And and if you you know if you really looked around, you know, there were a couple of uh, reporters from Sohu that had um, taken you know they they had definitely done their homework. Um, they definitely found some of the documents and, but, but nobody had it, you know, nobody anywhere had advanced the story beyond they arrive in New York, they get on another ship, they leave, that's it, they disappear. And, right. and, you know, that was, that was really our starting point was, okay, we know they leave from New York. So do they go straight into the Bermuda Triangle or, you know, where do they go from there? And then when do they end up? <laughs> I was going to say for me, that was the sort of first milestone in the sense that I thought we'll put a month into this. And if we can find something that's not available online, then we know we've got a story. Um, and if we can't, then I think we're going to have to let it go. Because, I mean, if you look, if you, you'd find people online on bulletin boards and some of these, you know, Titanic um, discussion websites and things and people would say oh what about the chinese oh well there's nothing known about them i don't think we're going to find them there's all sorts of reasons why they can't be found their names are impossible to work out uh they don't relate to chinese versions of their names um and you'd have these and you'd sometimes even have chinese people would turn up you know or people from um you know overseas chinese right. uh, you know chinese americans would turn up and say well we'd love to know more but there's no way it could be found out and so I had this initial thing where I thought, well, we've got, there's got to be something we can either correct in the record or we can find something new. And that, so that first month was, was crucial. And it, we ended and up you, finding a couple of really great things. Yeah, you found one important thread to pull on, and we'll get to that in a bit. So in some ways, this is uh, not even so much a film about the six survivors of the Titanic, but this film about this... Uh, crazed, obsessed American writer with this in the best uh, sense <laughs> uh, manic genius drive to track down the true story of the six. I mean, that's where the real tension comes, and it draws you along because you kind of feel that you're almost becoming part of this research team that is 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 being pulled along by this crazy guy, right? Yeah, I think for me, it's that's always been the interest. I mean, you know, I'll I'll leave Titanic to to Stephen, uh, and for me, it's it's a film about researchers. It's a film about what it's about to be a to be obsessed with something and go beyond what anyone else has tried to do in that area, um, and to do it for years. I, I I'd never say it like that, Jeremy, but yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, the point. The point is, I think that. Um, I, I somebody said to me early on I think we were pitching the film somewhere and someone said to me oh it sounds like you're making a cross between um, Catfish I don't know if you've ever seen that documentary Catfish and Who Do You Think You Are you know the family tree sort of it's somewhere in the middle and I always thought the Catfish bit of it was the fact that in Who Do You Think You Are you know that very well known sort of genealogical series where celebrities find out that family background they do it with researchers it's all about the reveal in the room where the where the experts tell the celebrity you know what what their background is i wanted to be with the researchers finding out how they dug into this that that's always what fascinated me so i thought well the principle here is stick cameras in the room and then watch them do it but of course the downside to that is you shoot hundreds and hundreds of hours of material um, and you're looking for just the moments when they find things well, there was a lot of that. I mean, there was a lot of that. So then, then, then there's a you know, then my you know my editors jump on my back because we get to the you know we get to post. We're starting to cut the film, and there's would would we still have the obligation to make a story to to create you know tension and to to play out a storyline with a little bit of an arc and things and and it's there. I mean, we feel it within us. Stephen and I, uh, you know went on this journey and the rest of the researchers and all the production and all the rest of it went on this huge journey but it's the the trick is how do you express that in a film and that's i think what you know what you're you're feeling there jeremy is that sense of 
joining that team as they do it and trying to be with them when they when they find something out and also to be with them for the frustrations, you know, when it's not working out, when Stephen's annoyed because something hasn't worked out the way he thought it might. How did you make the connection to James Cameron and what was his initial reaction to your idea? And did he have much input into the project? So I was lucky enough to meet James Cameron uh, about eight years ago. I guess it was uh, second half of 2012, thanks to uh, Jonah Greenberg. And, um, you know, I, it was just a thing that he was doing in, in Beijing. And um, I, of course, wanted to meet him. I mean, James Cameron, whether you like his films or not, he is perhaps the greatest living underwater explorer. So, I mean, they're that, you know, I wanted to meet him for that. That the, the films are great, but you know, I'm I, that that part was what really interested me. And at the same time, I also got to meet Maria Wilhelm, who runs his companies. And um, you know, as we started to get into this, I thought, you know, this is really um, James Cameron really is Mr. Titanic. Now he didn't discover it, right. although a lot of people think that he did. Um, you know, I mean, he really is the person that, that most people associate with, with Titanic now, uh, more so than, than Dr. Robert Ballard, who actually found it. And, um, you know, it, it just started to seem more and more obvious that, that he needed to be a part of this. And, and, you know, one of the things that we found very, very early on is that there's a deleted scene from, you know, the, the late nineties film of a Chinese man floating on a piece of wreckage being rescued. Right. And so that that told us, like, within the first month, hey, man, Cameron knew about this, okay? His people did their research. They went so far not just to kind of make notes on it, but they actually shot it. And you can see, just, just by watching it, you can see that it's so much like the Jack and Rose ending. Well, you, you can understand why it's a deleted scene. It's not like, oh, you know, we know what this Chinese guy in the movie, uh, you know, it's just, you're just not going to have two people rescued off a piece of wreckage. It's just repetitive. Um, and, and so then, you know, it's, it's, if you don't ask, you don't get. And, um, so we asked and we asked and we asked and we asked and, you know, then we asked somebody else to ask somebody else for us. And that kind of was it. It wasn't just knocking on the door. It was knocking the right way on the door. And, um, you know, in the end he was really receptive, really helpful, really warm with us. Um, as was Maria, I mean, they were into it, you know, it, but, you know, I mean, they're, they're busy people, you know, he's shooting what three avatar films at the same time. Wow. And, and, you know, he's, he's just got other stuff going on. It's, I'm, I'm sure he gets 50 things like this a day. And, you know, luckily for us, he, he decided that ours was, was worthy of his time. Indeed. So let's get to the the sort of heart of it. Your film focuses on the search for these six survivors. What were these Chinese men, all from Guangdong province, what were they doing on the Titanic to begin with? So they were, um, you know, there are a lot of myths about them, and I won't bust every single one of them, otherwise there's no point in seeing the film. Um, but, you know, they were they were professional mariners. They were they were you know guys who worked in in the engine room of of ships. Are we talking about just shoveling coal or? Yeah, shoveling coal you know, keeping stuff lubricated. They, they were what were referred to as firemen, but that didn't mean they put right. fires out. If anything, it meant they kept the fires going. And then you get, you know, the odd cook among them, um, you know, somebody who would, who would, you know, especially cook Chinese food for Chinese crew. Um, and they, just, they were on Titanic, not because they were working on it. They were not. They were passengers. But there was a coal strike on in the UK at the time the Titanic sailed, and because it needed so much coal, and because its its on time departure was so important, you know they had ordered a lot in advance, and at the same time, uh, the White Star Line canceled its other departures. Titanic was not full when it sailed, um, and they they just canceled all their other departures. Said, okay, shift everybody over to Titanic. They'll be thrilled that they get on this new ship. They took all the coal from those other ships. And, you know, these guys were essentially being seconded from the uh, European operations of their cargo shipping line over to the North American coast. Um, so it was just a, you know, they were, they were just being sent across. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, they happened to be sent across on the most star-crossed ship of them all. Right. And so they weren't actually laboring on the Titanic. They were passengers no. in, in steerage. Right. right. That's right. They were passengers. Okay. 
I mean, yeah. it, it, it's sort of like deadheading, except that their company had to, because they weren't white star employees, their company had to pay for their passage. Ah, I see. Tell us how you managed to track down the son of one of the men whose name on the registry appears as Fung Lang and how you wound up in Janesville, Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was, uh, that, that was very, it, it, that was one of our tests sort of early on. And we set that as a kind of goal, you know, would, would we find descendants? Because it just seemed like that was something that was essential to the memorializing of, of lots of the other well-known survivors. Um, and so we set off to see what there might be. And fairly quickly, I think Stephen and I came across uh, a, a forum, an online forum, where someone was chipping into a conversation and and correcting things about this Falun. What's your evidence? Guy, yeah. One of the one of the survivors, um, and he 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 he'd corrected various things. He said you got the age wrong and and so on. And at one point, he said he's my father. Um, uh, and it just seems so unlikely that someone would be there. I mean, it, we, I think Steve. I think Stephen will back me up on this. You've got to bear in mind that you know the last Titanic survivor um, died probably ten years ago now. Is that right, Stephen? Something like ten years, ten, eleven years ago now. Yeah. So their children, the children of Titanic survivors, many of many of them have died. That there aren't many left of the children. I mean, there are grandchildren who are dying from old age at this point. So the idea that was just someone online, some random guy online talking about my father, um, uh, it just seemed unlikely. And there was a lot of skepticism towards him. People were quite pushy um, against him. You know, how do you know? What's the evidence? What? And and very quickly, he he. That's right. And he he just he just he disappeared. I mean, within weeks. So you could you could chart this. The conversation that was going on, um, and actually, as we looked at this sort of fossilized record of that conversation, which I think had taken place in the in the it, sort of two thousand eight, two thousand nine, something like that, um, the uh, um, you could see, you know, you could see people at once he disappeared, even in his wake, kind of thing, saying, "Well, that that seems unlikely. That's not that's not going to be real." Um, uh, because people people like to claim a connection to Titanic, it's a it's an interesting thing to be connected to, um, and uh, he didn't offer up many details. And you could see in that in that in the fossil record of that conversation, if you like, there were a couple of journalists turned up. I think the ones that Stephen mentioned earlier, these Beijing journalists, had turned up and said, "Hey, are you still there?" You know, and tried to entice him back in, but he but he wasn't around, and so there was a, a whole period of several weeks where we were trying to work out how we could get in touch with someone who disappeared, who wasn't registered on the site anymore, and and we ended up doing it, which is it's it's recorded in the film, but we ended up doing it, and then began our journey with the Fong family and uh, the time that we spent trying to not necessarily validate the story because we didn't know if it's true at the beginning but to work out whether there was anything to what they thought might be the case they weren't certain either but they thought there was a good chance that the sort of the patriarch of their family had had been this guy Fang Long and the central mystery of that of course was that his name was nothing like Fang Long in the right. life that he lived in America because he turns up you know being called Fang Wing Sun right that's right yeah, I mean, as, as, as we'll see. He's, he's called Fong Wing Sun. I mean, we don't even go all through through all the names we found for him, but I think there's sort of seven or eight of them um, that we found in the end. We'll, we'll get to why the, all, yeah. all the serial name changes in, in a little bit. Uh, one of the things that just leapt out at me pretty, you know, I mean, it was just amazing, is you guys were trying to puzzle out how the, the men would have gotten from steerage near the fore of the ship to the upper decks of the starboard aft where they were able to finally get into the water. You came across the makers of this video game called Titanic Honor and Glory. I'm a video game guy. I like video games. Can, can, tell us about this game. I mean, it, this this segment was just mind-blowing to me. Well, Honor I mean, and Glory. These, these I mean, I... I uh... I, I I don't know if the scene is in the final film, but but there is a. Uh, I know I've seen a clip of a gaping mouthed me, um, you know, just just watching them run through this footage, 
And I mean, this... this it is in the film, yeah. Oh, okay. It's in the film, It's, Stephen, it's yeah. uh, for anyone interested in maritime history to be able to walk through, and I mean walk through, walk through, stroll through, run through, you know, a hyper-accurate representation of Titanic from deck to deck. And But, you know, it was so helpful to us. You know, so these are, these are just guys... It, it's they're kind of taking the Cameron approach, which is Cameron wanted to dive Titanic and he wanted somebody else to pay for it. So he thought, okay, uh, I better make a movie about this. And, and these guys are kind of doing the same thing. They're like, well, we want to make this gorgeous, hyper accurate, um, you know, representation of the wreck. So we'll create this game called honor and glory and that'll give us a chance to do it. And then we'll just come up with a story and, you know, people do it. The, the, the game is still in, in, in production as of, as of this recording, but, um, you know, Tom and Matt are clearly like really into it. And, but I mean, it was so helpful. It, it's, you know, I, I always say the map is not the territory and, and, you know, obviously we can't go walk the Titanic decks or, or even other decks of, a a white star line ship anymore, but, but this is really the next best thing. And I think working through it with them was so helpful in terms of seeing, you know, when, when they come out of their cabin, what, what do they see? What are their choices? What's obvious to them? Oh, well, there's a watertight door there. So they're not going to wander towards the back of the ship that way. Immediately they're going to get, go, go up the stairs at least to the next level, if not a couple of more levels. Mm -hmm. And that really, just kind of demonstrated to us that even though there's something like 20 ways for third class passengers to get to get up to the boat deck and 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 have access to lifeboats you know there there really there weren't nearly as many choices um and and then add to that stewards telling you move to the back move to the stern keep going that way um you know people smacking into you carrying their possessions um you know, it just there, there, there weren't all that many routes. The only, the only advantage that our guys would have had was that they, because they were mariners, they would have known their way around a ship, even a ship like Titanic that was so much larger than anything they they had ever been on. Right. Um, they really would have, you know, they might have been able to see. Okay, hey, that's an emergency door. Hey, that that looks like a door to a passageway. That might have given them more choices than the average passenger would have had. Right. 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 And we were told multiple times this whole issue of them being, um, uh, you know, that they're on a ship, they work on ships, that you know, deadheads. That they, there's that there's. We were told by someone who's um, works in in uh, as a steward on on a plane. There's a certain way that you look at the experience of traveling on that pat on that on that form of travel you know so well. And they would they would have seen, and we were told this with a degree of certainty. You know, they would have just seen this. They would have noticed the signs very early on when other passengers would not have been so sure. And combined with the fact they were in the in the fore of the ship where the water came up quickest, they right. would have felt the vibrations, probably even heard the collision. They were in a in a in a particular place and were the particular type of passenger um, that maybe gave them gave them mm. the edge because so so few third-class men made it out of that section uh, can, can you explain this word deadhead that you keep on using because I'm, I'm picturing like uh, you know people on acid uh, following the grateful dead <laughs> sure deadhead is just um especially it's used mostly with air crew now it's not it's not uh, referring to people who used to follow the grateful dead it's um people who usually who work for airlines now or maybe other forms of transport where um you know, they're, they're instead of, you know, they're in New York, but they need to fly from Chicago to LA the next morning. That's their assignment. Um, because they work for the airline, they're able to, you know, there's a, there's a, a jump seat in, in the cockpit of some aircraft where they can sit. It's not very comfy, but it gets them from, you know, wherever they are to wherever they need to go. Um, and they don't have to pay for it. Or sometimes, you know, if the, if the plane's not full, they just get a, a regular you know, a regular passenger seat right. in economy. 
Um, so, Stephen, we have something in common, I believe. Kaiser was reminding me I used to uh, take, uh, I think, annual winter swims around New Year's Eve uh, in Kohai in uh, freezing, near freezing water. <laughs> uh, but I suspect they were much more comfortable than what I saw in the film of you and your sub-zero dyes, not least because I was uh, sufficiently warmed uh, from within <laughs> with uh, good spirits. Uh, but uh, tell us about your sub-zero experiences. Well, you were plunged in deliberately wearing just Chinese clothing. That was just nuts. I was, I was like, I had to go put on a blanket after watching that scene. <laughs> Well, it was, <clears throat> I mean, we, you know, we needed to know what Fang Long's experience would have been like. Um, you know, what would he have, how would he have felt, you know, and I did it in a controlled environment. You know, the water was 10 degrees <laughs> Celsius warmer than it would have been on the night the Titanic sank. Um, you know, it, it was... There wouldn't have been hundreds of people in the water screaming around me, trying to use me as flotation. Uh, so my experience was far more pleasant, um, I, I imagine. Far less but, unpleasant. Um, you know, w- w- <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, it, it, I think for, you know, my, my job was basically just to kind of stay warm and, and therefore not move around too much. Fang Long would not have had that opportunity. He... You know, we we think that growing up on an island, that he would have known how to swim at least at least basically. He certainly would have had a life vest, so flotation wouldn't have been a problem for him. Um, But I mean, the the biting cold, you know, cold in water versus cold in air is just so it's such a different experience. And um, you know, he seems to have it. It allowed us that experiment allowed us to see that he would have had probably maximum 15 to 20 minutes of functionality, meaning even if he did get himself to some piece of wreckage upon which he could hoist himself, you know, would he still have enough control of his limbs and, and fingers? And, you know, that, that, that's, that's part of the problem is at the very end, they handed me a, a, a nut and a screw and they said, okay, you know, push the nut all the way up the screw and they timed it and, and, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I can, I can only compare it to, to drunkenness. You know, you're, you're, you're signaling your fingers, you know, spin, push, spin, push. Just couldn't do and, it. And it's just not getting done yeah. or, it's, or it's not getting done to the, you know, as quickly as you know it can be done. And then I had to tie a, a piece of rope around, around um, uh, a bit of wood because uh, Tom, our, our survivor's son, Fang Long's son, always said, you know, oh, well, he, he lashed himself to the wreckage using a belt or, or rope or something. And so, you know, would we want to see, would he have been able to do that? And yes, but only if he had been in the water for probably no more than 20 minutes. But um, it's, it's not something I would recommend. So guys, I'm curious, this is a, a collaborative project. Did the two of you tend to see the material you were working with in the same way, the the archival stuff, the interview material, all, all the others, uh, or were there differences in how you rea- reacted to the material uh, that the the researchers put together, or that you you unearthed on your own, Arthur? Yeah, I, we we definitely. I mean, it's you know, there's no compulsion in the way we work for us to agree. <laughs> for us to agree right. about things and there were things we definitely disagreed with um uh, we we certainly came at their their arrival in new york and what had happened there with a different sort of take on what might have happened hmm. um i think we ended up more or less in the same place um you know in terms of how we and how how we looked at that um but there, there were aspects of the story we certainly came up from a different. I mean, and my my interest. I, I of course, I was involved in the project. Um, I, I was pushing research because there were things that interested me. I wanted to be in the film, but my my thing was always to try and create right. the story that would work, that would make sure that it worked as a film. And so we needed those moments. Um, I don't know that Stephen necessarily would have put himself in the cold water. Um, I think in the end it was useful to do that. You know, I don't know that we necessarily would have found the honor and glory guys, although it turned out to be very useful. And there were things that Stephen was fascinated by that ended up bringing a lot to the film. For example, the reconstruction of collapsible sea. 
right, I remember um, that. was something that Stephen was... You guys did that at an international school in, in Beijing or Shanghai? That's or, right, and Stephen uh, set up that... It, it was in um, WB in, in, in Beijing, and Stephen set up that whole thing. And I wasn't convinced, but it, I, 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 I loved the way it worked out and, the, and what they did there. Right, to just see what it would have been like for these four... Um, men to to be lying there. Uh, I mean, uh, why it could have possibly been that some of the witnesses that night didn't see the Chinese men on the boat? Yeah. Well, exactly. It's 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 a it's a it's you know again the map is not the territory. I mean, we could have made a tiny little model and stuck some Barbie dolls in there and said, oh yeah, they could have hit or they you know they wouldn't have hit. But there was just really we we weren't going to know for sure. And you know, one thing we've learned as part of this uh, exploration, let's call it. Um, you know, the Titanic community is really friendly right up until the moment that you challenge any of the orthodoxy. And the moment that you do that, it, it gets to be a very unfriendly group of people yeah. because they don't they don't like that. Because usually the people who are, you know, your admins and your moderators are, are the people who have created that orthodoxy. And, um, you know, if, if we were not interested in doing a brand new story and really looking at what the evidence said as opposed to, you know, what, what layers and layers of historical barnacles, you know, seem to show, then there was no point in, in doing any of this. So, you know, to me, we, we had to, this, this is one of the central mysteries because it's one of the things that they were always criticized about. These are cowards. They hid under the seats. And the implication is these four men living meant that four women and children died. That, that's really the implication is if, if these four men lived, then other people died, specifically Anglo men and, you know, Anglo women and children. And there, so, so therefore, I think whether we were going to prove it right or prove it wrong, it was just something that we had to do if we were going to bother doing this at all. And the only way we were going to do that was to create the only existing model of a collapsible Titanic lifeboat and then populate it with people you know, of the same approximate size. And, that's dedication. You know, could, they, could they have hidden? Yeah, yeah. Why wouldn't people, you know, why, could you see them? Couldn't you see them? You know, why Why would people say that they did or they didn't? So, um, I mean, the, the WAB crew was great. You know, Western Academy of Beijing, they were fantastic. Mark Trumpold, who's the, the shop teacher who oversaw the whole thing. I mean, man, he really hung in there for us. Um, but it was just... You know, if we're if we're, we're going to go out and change Titanic history, then then let's do it the right way, and and uh, you know let's do it properly one way or the other. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So, of course, aside from being a film about uh, these men escaping death in the icy Arctic waters, and uh, uh, a mad uh, genius Titanic weirdo's obsession uh, with their fate, the film is also about immigrants, uh, about immigration, about the Chinese Exclusion Act in the United States and <laughs> Canada's uh, Chinese immigration law, which is perhaps uh, less well known. Uh, just the fact that the protagonists' names are changed, Fang Lang becomes Fang Wing Sun, for instance, it requires you to explain why these paper sons often have to destroy their paper trails. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Well, you know, first of all, you've called me a titanic weirdo and a mad scientist so far. So, uh, <laughs> that genius. You know, that, that's cool. That's cool. I'm digging that. Um, the, the, you know, the, because of the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act, which went into effect in 1882, basically as a way to keep out Chinese laborers. There were different groups, miners and, uh, you know, workers of various kinds that, that just felt that, you know, <laughs> the Chinese were taking their jobs and they were doing the same work for less money or, you know, they, they, they just didn't want the competition, especially in places like California, but, but you know, also elsewhere in the country. And um, that, of course, did not stop the desire of, um, you know, would-be Chinese immigrants who, once they started coming in the late 40s and, uh, sorry, late 1840s and, and 1850s for the gold rush, and then they stayed around to to do some of the absolutely brutal labor of, of building the railroads, you know, there was still, there was still opportunity for them uh, here as, as bitter as it might have been. Um, so then the way forward was to fall into one of the four categories uh, that were exceptions to the Exclusion Act. So if you were a scholar or uh, a diplomat, um, those things were probably, you know, you weren't going to fool anybody doing that. 
But one of the categories that that was permitted was merchants. There, you know, the United States still wanted trade with China. Gee, how familiar <laughs> this sounds. Um, but they still want to trade with China. So if you were a merchant and you were coming here to set up a business and do some trade between the two countries, okay. But of course, that required a little bit of money, and you know, maybe you needed relatives here or you know, in the U.S. And um, so the way around it was to create a false identity. You know, maybe you were, you know, maybe your name was Fang Long, and 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 but you know, you needed to be, you needed a completely different name. Um, you know, you had, you knew someone from your village who was in the United States, they could say, well, he's my nephew, you know, your son. Yeah, this is my nephew. This is my son. This is my whomever. There were in the beginning, especially they were almost always male. There were very few women, um, that were allowed to go to the U S they just, they just didn't meet any of the qualifications. Um, so, you know, but, but the, up came this idea of the paper son. So you would, uh, someone would come back from, from the U S uh, on a on a visit home, and then when they went back to China, they would declare, "Oh, this is my son," and so forth. Obviously, it was kind of kind of like the old uh, Beijing Shell Company shell game. Um, you know, you had to let your company age for a while to prove that it, you know, was for real or whatever. But then you could say, "Oh, this is my ten-year-old son, my sixteen-year-old son, whatever." And then they, during the journey over, obviously it's a ship journey, not a not a, an air journey. They would have to learn their new identity. The, on, the only thing I can really compare it to now is the witness protection program where somebody <laughs> says, okay, your name is John Smith. Your name isn't John Smith anymore because John Smith is going to get killed by whomever. We're going to give you a completely new identity and you need to know it backwards and forwards. You know, uh, and, and, and when you arrived in the U.S., at, usually it was Ellis, uh, sorry, usually it was Angel, Angel Island, Island in right. California. Um, but, uh, you know, you would be questioned. Um, you'd be detained, there'd be a health inspection, and then you'd be questioned, okay, what village are you from? Uh-huh, you say you're from the Wong family. Well, how far away does the Fong family live? How many steps from your door to their door? Is their, is their house a two-story house or a, you know, because this was information that, that the, uh, what was then the immigration service had collected over time. They would bring in someone from, you know, your village. Who well, there's always a village you know, in Tyson, right? information. And, right, right. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, so, and then, and you would, you would have to be able to say, well, oh, of course it's a two story house. Oh, well, you know, I, I live 15 steps from the Fongs and, you know, the, the, I guess the good news was, was that most people seem to have gotten through. Um, they would have to, they would read their papers throughout the, the ship journey. And then before they arrived in San Francisco or whatever their ultimate destination was, they would throw the papers overboard so that there was no record of that. And then they would arrive being, you know, whatever their new name was. And, uh, you know, we, we were really stuck on the names in the beginning. We were like, you know, what, what language, you know, what dialect is this? Right. Who's writing these names? They're all two character names or are these just the given names? I mean, we struggled. We probably did a year just on the names. And uh, in the end, thanks to the work of our fantastic genealogists, including... Uh, uh, the folks from My China Roots who've been on your show. Yeah. Um, Clotilda. You know, yeah. they, they, I mean, they, they finally got it. They were like, guys, don't sweat the names, okay? Like, you know, we filial piety is important, yeah. but getting in the country is like kind of important also. Speaking of getting so, in the country, uh, you, one yeah. of the things that you did, uh, I think it was generated one of the more poignant moments in the film, uh, you, you did go to Taishan, uh, which is, you know, west on the western part of the Pearl River Delta. And you met a great nephew of Fawin's son, and he actually recited this poem that his great uncle had composed, which the guy remembers. I wrote this down here: is sky high, sea wide, waves churn and flip. My life was saved by a wooden stick. Three or four friends I find still alive. Wipe away sadness and laugh with delight. I mean that that for me was just amazing. I mean, and what did that feel like when you were there in the room with cameras on, and that suddenly comes out of this man's mouth? Well, it, it was it was. I mean, it's just it's just one of those moments. It's one of the it's one of the reasons that you do this. You know, you you start out and you you always think it's going to be an A to B journey, and it's A to F, and then F to K, and then K back to C, and then. You know, hopefully at some point you end up where you think you were going to end up, or maybe you end up someplace better. But 
you don't have those moments until you go out. You know, you can do all the internet searches that you like, right. but until you go out and you and you meet the people and you see the you see where they're from and that that is the story. That is where the story comes from. Nobody cares about a sunken piece of metal. That's you know that that was not really the story. That was the lead into the story, but that was not the story that we set out for. And I mean, that's right. You know, it, you know. That's why it succeeds ultimately. Yeah, and it's worth saying on the on the poem, um, we actually held. I held back on having Stephen go to Taishan just so that it would be fresh to him. But the team had been down there. I mean, I'd been there on there down there. I think three or four times before the time we filmed that scene. And um, you sometimes think about the way that, you know, films can distort the truth or, you know, we knew something already. I'd met Fang Xiaoying, the, the nephew in that scene, um, wow. I think three or four times. And we grilled him. I mean, we grilled him on everything he knew. And he had never mentioned the poem. Wow. I mean, the, it, it, it was crazy when it happened. He'd never mentioned it. There was nothing about that had come up. Uh, we'd asked about letters that had been sent, and we were there on that day in filming, and and it suddenly cropped up, and and I, we asked him later and said, you know, why why didn't you why didn't you tell us that? Either? Why didn't you tell us that? And he said, well, I just remembered it. I Amazing. just remembered it. Well, you know, it's the great summary quote that Stephen gives toward the end of the film that I think sums it up so nicely. Surviving Titanic was not by any means the greatest obstacle they overcame in their lives. Titanic was a bump in the road for them, significant as it may seem. They never gave up. They never gave up on the night of April 14th, and they never gave up for the rest of their lives. And I think there's a lot we can learn from that. Indeed, it is a very inspiring documentary. I hope that our listeners all get a chance to see it in the theater or at home. I mean, among the many things I really loved about it was just the way that it it, it brings out all this historical context. It, it it just reminds you of all the contingencies that history throws at you. You know, stuff like, you know, the Hakapunti Wars in the 1840s that sent these men abroad in the first place, the, the coal strike that Stephen talked about on the eve of Titanic setting sail, uh, all, you know, that got them on the ship in the first place, the outbreak of the Great War. I mean, you know, all the, the, the weird vicissitudes that they, they dealt with in their lives. It's fantastic. So, Arthur, Stephen, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk to us. When can we expect to actually be able to see this in the U.S.? Do you guys have any inkling at this point? Uh, we we have international distributors now, so that they, they literally last week. I think we signed last week. Um, so hopefully we'll we'll know something really soon. But the plan is to make it available, you know, pretty pretty much everywhere. So as soon as we as soon as we have that information, we'll we'll definitely start posting. I mean, we've we've run a what it's worth mentioning. We at the beginning of this project, we set up our sort of social medias, if you like, and it was incredibly helpful. The t- the, the, the 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 people who who joined in and followed us helped us to find tons of information. And um, so you know, especially the Facebook page where we where we sort of uh, sent we centered the film around there. So uh, we've always you know, pushed out all of our latest information to that to that to that group, and it's always fed back a huge amount to us. So we'll we'll do the same for this. Once we know anything, we'll post that. Great, thanks thanks so much, guys. Let's move on to recommendations. Uh, before we do that, I want to quickly remind listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by Sub China. If you like this podcast and the other fine shows in our network, the way you keep us going is to subscribe to Sub China's Access Newsletter. For just 88 bucks a year, you get this excellent newsletter delivered to your inbox and you get early ad-free access to this podcast. Uh, you also get discounted admission to our major conferences if we ever have any again because of this damn virus. <laughs> and uh, free admission to our live podcast recordings, same caveat, uh, and, and more. So sign up and show your, rep- your, your support for us. Okay, on to recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you start us off? What do you have for us? Yeah, I'd like to recommend a South African uh, news website called uh, Daily Maverick. That's dailymaverick, one word, dot co, dot Z-A-Z-A, or COSA, some people say, dailymaverick.co.za. It's a news uh, website. They publish opinion as well, but uh, a lot of uh, great journalism about South Africa, some investigative journalism, always a smart take. Um, So, yeah, Daily Maverick. Oh, really interesting. Yeah, that sounds great. Arthur, you got something for us? Um, yeah, a couple of um, a couple of documentaries in in this quarantine lockdown. I've been I've been 
racing off and watching films that I should have watched years ago or I watched and I'd forgotten about. Um, there's a fantastic uh, 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 documentary called, in English it's called Still Tomorrow um, by the, the Chinese documentary maker Fan Jian. Um, uh, I think it's called Yao Yao Huang Huang in Jian um, in, um, in Chinese. Um, it's uh, you can find it online. I think it's uh, I think it's on the on the Chinese platforms, and you can buy, buy in other places too. About a wonderful poet uh, um, who's uh, we follow her journey. Her marriage is sort of falling apart a bit, and and she lives in the the middle of the countryside. And it's just an incredibly inspiring film about her woman who's sort of trapped in a, in somewhere and trying to get somewhere else. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I just I just love the film, and I watched it again a couple of weeks ago. And the other one is a film that I come back to again and again. It's part of this quirky, I love it, but lots of people don't like it type of cinema. They tend to call slow cinema, um, and it's called Sleep Furiously. It's this very quiet, thoughtful portrayal of a village in Wales, and about the way that the village is getting older and the kids are leaving. And it's all filmed in these very kind of lockdown still shots um, of um, old people talking about their lives and the postman coming through the village and the live, the mobile library coming through. And it's hard to do it justice, but it's a, it's a wonderful film for, for a time when we can't necessarily move around as much as we want to. And it's good to just look at things for a long time. Hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. Sleep Furiously. The name of that filmmaker, do you know? That's right. Gideon Koppel. Gideon Koppel. Uh, is the filmmaker. And he has a great story. I think he worked in, um, I think he worked in advertising in, in London for years. And uh, I think he tells the story of sort of um, burning, you know, suffering from sort of burnout in the big city. And he returned to the village, I think, where he grew up mm. and, and shot this incredible film. Um, and it's, re- yeah, it's really worth it. From your description, it sounds like it might make certain viewers sleep Furiously. Yeah, but, uh. <laughs> okay, Stephen, what do you have for us, man? Uh, I'm, I'm going to tip my hat to, to two writer friends who have new books out. Uh, one is uh, by Cameron Dweck, D-U-E-C-K, and his mm-hmm. book is called Menno Moto. And it's Menno as in Mennonite and Moto as in motorcycle. And so um, Cameron is, um, you know, potentially better known to people for writing a book called The New Northwest Passage where he sailed a sailboat from Vancouver over through the Canadian Arctic and down into Halifax. Um, but he, this, for this one, he exchanged a, uh, he exchanged his sailboat for a motorcycle and he went out from, uh, I believe it's Manitoba where he's from and rode his motorcycle all the way down to the tip of, of Patagonia. Um, wow just kind of hitting you know he's he, he you know he grew up as a Mennonite he speaks that dialect of German and you know he just kind of hit all the communities along the way to see you know are they still around and you know are, are they still thriving are they still you know uh do they still speak the language you know what what customs have they retained and uh, you know just just uh, he's a superb writer and and uh, you know it's a it's a fascinating project to undertake um, and then the other is a sort of a, a, a lesser known, I don't really know why, but kind of a lesser known Beijing writer named Aishim Cook, uh, who has a new book called Confucius and, and Opium, which is a, a series of China book reviews. And, you know, his, he's, he's originally from Chicago. Aishim Cook is a pen name, um, but he is uh, uh, probably one of Beijing's most daring you know, foreign writers. He he is not for the politically correct, um, and and his material is not <laughs> for children. But he is a, a you know a superb observer. Um, you know, he's he's a, also a longtime Beijinger, twenty twenty plus years, and um, you know he's got a he's got a keen eye both for Beijing life and also for the written word. And uh, hmm. all, all of his books, or certainly this book, is is only ninety nine cents on Kindle. Um, so if you're hearing this and you're still locked down, you know, go, go, go grab it now. Cause it's, it's nice and cheap, but it's a spell Isham for me, Stephen. Uh, I S H A M. And, and funnily enough, when we were, when we were doing some of our research in, um, in Chicago, we, we ran into, a, a, a professor of his, someone who had been a professor of his at, in, uh, in Chicago, who was, uh, 
who's on the board of the Chinese American Museum there. And so it, you know, just kind of reminded us what a teeny tiny little world this is sometimes. Indeed. Okay, so my shallow recommendation, I mean, I've been in lockdown and I need something just sort of semi-mindless to get me through. Um, the Good Place, a show on Netflix. It's just an ensemble comedy. It's, you know, it's got just enough smarts, but more of the kind of dumb that I need right now. Um, it, it's got you know occasional references to moral philosophy, and that's that's kind of funny and maybe just cerebral enough to make this guilty pleasure not irretrievably guilt-inducing. But um, it, it's in the sort of same spirit as Parks and Recreation or Community. I, I don't quite put it up there with Parks and Recreation, but it's it's good. Uh, I'm in the middle of the second season, and I think there's four seasons, but I'm actually worried that after this, I don't have another good kind of go-to turn off the brain and mindlessly kind of chuckle comedy lined up. So if listeners can hit me with their suggestions, I'd be greatly appreciative. Um, great, man. Thanks thanks once again. Arthur, congrats. It's such a great film. Steven, congrats. It's just uh, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks to both of you. Thank you, guys. Jeremy, as always, man. Thanks, Kaiser. We'll yeah. talk soon. Thanks, Arthur. Thank you, Stephen. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the other podcasts in the network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.